Losing first progesterone and then estrogen means the brain has to do everything differently. It's experiencing levels of inflammation higher than it had before. It's experiencing levels of energy temporarily lower than before. And that's because the brain doesn't have estrogen to help it to use glucose for energy. So it has to adapt and become metabolically flexible to learn to use or to be able to use ketones for energy. Welcome to the Metagenics Institute podcast, a place where you can hear from leading experts in health and wellness, from scientists and researchers to internationally recognized clinicians. Enjoy this insightful conversation with host Nathan Rose. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Metagenics Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nathan Rose. And joining me today again for a second time is Lara Bride. And hi, Lara. Hi, Nathan. Thanks for having me. And thank you. It's my pleasure. So, Lara, we've got you on. Um, it's on the dawn of your book, which is uh, released tomorrow, but this podcast probably go out in a couple of weeks. But you've got a new book called The Hormone Repair Manual. So we're here to talk about that. So um, thanks for taking some time out. And I'm looking forward to diving into this topic with you. Yeah, I'm, it's, I'm pretty passionate about this topic, just as I am about periods, equally passionate about perimenopause and menopause. I bet. Um, so what motivated you to write this book? So you wrote the, when was the um, period, repair period repair manual? manual? When was that published? Yeah. And- yeah. Period repair manual came out, first came out like an early, early edition, 2015. And then a few years later, I upgraded it expanded it quite a lot so then it, that the second edition the pink one was 2018 so now somehow we're three years later I don't know how that happened <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah the period repair manual obviously looked at conditions around menstruation and probably more for a, a younger female with like um, dysmenorrhea maybe endometriosis and fibroids but obviously this is around the perimenopause and the uh, the menopause period. So, yeah, just again, um, did you feel there was a gap there in in knowledge and, and patients' understanding? Yeah, exactly. Gap is the word I thought of when I you know, heard your question, what motivated me. Well, first of all, let me say this book is for women 35 and older. So that's one of the things I need to clarify right at the beginning about perimenopause is it can start as young as 35. So we're talking now kind of the older millennials, definitely Gen X through our late 30s, 40s. This is into 50s. This is who needs hormone repair manual. And yeah, when I was getting ready to write this book, I had a very similar feeling to when I wrote period repair manual, which was that I perceived what felt like a gap in the understanding of it, like, a, you know, sort of fundamentally to some degree. So I was hope I'm hopeful that, you know, I've stepped into that and have provided some clarity around a few issues. Excellent. So I've had a, a read of the book. It's brilliant. And I wanted to dive into some of the more technical details, um, look at some of the theories and importantly, look at some, some treatments. So um, first of all, let's dive into the perimenopausal uh, period, which you spend a, a great deal of time discussing because, Obviously, that's when uh, hormonal issues can go awry. Um, so first of all, what 
what is the perimenopausal period and what's the sort of hormonal changes or balance that occur in this period? Yep. So it's the anywhere from about two to 10 years before periods stop. So it's what I call second puberty in the book. And it's usually the time, if there are going to be symptoms, then perimenopause is when there are symptoms. Symptoms are usually worse in those, in our forties, kind of late forties. And also the, the, the 12 months after the final period, which is also technically part of perimenopause. And the, one of the main things to understand about it is that it's temporary, right? These are not, this is not how you're always going to be now. I think that's what I say in the book, you know, this too will end. Eventually we achieve menopause or we graduate to menopause, which is the life phase that begins one year after the final period. And usually for most women after that life gets easier again, the hormonal changes are all over and you're just into the more stable menopausal years. And in answer to your question, you know, what are the big hormonal things that are happening? Perimenopause, second puberty is all about high fluctuating estrogen, higher than normal, like three times higher than what it used to be. And a steadily decreasing or completely absent progesterone. Interesting. And um, so this is historically in integrative and natural medicine being dubbed estrogen dominance. Um, I notice you go to a bit of um, detail and describe or articulate why you've moved away essentially from that um, terminology and, you, um, and more favor and ovulatory cycles. Can you explain the rationale there? Yeah. It's to communicate the importance of ovulation because most patients I've spoken to, and a lot of my work has been informed directly by my conversations with patients and trying to meet them where they're at and you know talk about things in the way they need to understand. But I would say your average woman probably does not understand that progesterone comes from ovulation. Like they might know that they need more progesterone, but they don't maybe entirely intuitively kind of understand why. So I like to put the emphasis on anovulation or anovulatory cycles or, you know, why are you not ovulating, which is a question I come back to again and again in both books. And the other thing I don't really love about the term estrogen dominance is that, and this is sort of a, I don't know, this is my, kind of my feminist thing. I, I sort of feel like it inherently kind of implies that estrogen is bad, which is just, mm. just wrong. <laughs> and actually a lot of things get a lot of symptoms get attributed to estrogen dominance, i.e. to estrogen that are, are not accurately really caused by estrogen directly. I think a lot of the times what we're describing, what we're seeing, like with headaches and you know breast pain and irritability, some of that is actually the histamine or mast cell activation that occurs with high estrogen. And the, some of the other thing that happens one of the other things that happens with menopause sort of with later in perimenopause and into menopause is actually a shift to what I call in the book, testosterone dominance, kind of to mm. turn it on its head and just point out that abdominal weight gain with menopause is actually from testosterone dominance, not estrogen in women. Testosterone causes belly weight. Yeah. Uh, fascinating. And I agree that that it's something I've, I suppose has been, ruminating my mind for a while now this concept of high estrogen and just tackling like trying to detoxify estrogen i don't think and i'm not an expert here seldom gives the the clinical benefits that maybe once was promoted and yeah there's a lot more going on which we'll dive into i think yeah. like with mast cells etc 
Um, so yeah, just essentially to to summarize, uh, post potentially thirty five years of age, women are failing to ovulate, yet they're still having a, a period. So how does how do you, a woman know, or how does a clinician determine whether there's a, a ovulation or not? Well, the simplest way is to track temperatures. So as you know, we get a, a temperature shift, a basal body temperature shift with ovulation. That's pretty, it's very easy to see um, just with a normal, you know, arm, there's a few wearable devices now. You can track it that way or you can just under the tongue thermometer, you know, first thing in the morning before you get out of bed. So that's probably the simplest way to know if, ovulation is occurring. The thing about it, it's not just like it magically at 35, we just stop ovulating because obviously we don't mm. and that varies. You know, we, we, we start to tend to a less robust ovulation. I'll put it that way. Like we maybe are, st- you know, we're of- oftentimes still ovulating, sometimes not, which is pretty normal to have some cycles where you don't ovulate. And then not only that, but perhaps not making the amount of progesterone that we did in our 20s and early 30s, kind of during the peak fertility time. And it's just a natural process. I mean, I in in Hormone Repair Manual, I do make the point that progesterone is hard to make. It was always hard. It was hard when we were younger. And a lot of period repair manual is about finding ways to ovulate and make progesterone. And all of those same things still hold true in our late 30s and 40s. We still have to have, for example, healthy thyroid function. We have to be eating enough. We have to not have insulin resistance. We not need to not have chronic inflammation. All of those things are potential obstacles to a robust ovulation. But what changes is in our late 30s and 40s, we've got still sensitive to all of those obstacles to ovulation, but plus the ovarian follicles are just not as vital, just not as the corpus luteum is just not going to be as strong as it was when we were younger. And that's a normal process. Okay. That makes sense. Um, I suppose what surprised me and dawned upon me, uh, women obviously start having or often start having these um, symptoms, perimenopausal or slash almost menopausal symptoms like the night sweats during this period. um, So that's not necessarily because of a lack of estrogen, if anything, it could be an excess of estrogen. No, it's from dropping estrogen. So So the night sweats, night sweats are pretty typical perimenopause. They're usually going to be happening during the premenstrual times of, of periods um, in our, in our forties. So, and it's from, yeah, it's from the drop from high to low estrogen. So you can imagine so in in the in my book I I quote Professor Geraldine Pryor. She actually helped me with the mm. book. She fact checked it. She ah, um yeah. recently complete I recently wrote a scientific paper with her, so I know her quite well. So she's she provided some great quotes like, you know, this is perimenopause is the ovaries grand finale. Like they're just mm-hmm. pumping out heaps of estrogen. A lot of it's from the high F- as FSH goes higher, estrogen goes higher. So there, may- and plus we're not clearing it as well. You mentioned estrogen to- detoxification; that's also important. But yeah, we start to get th- like estrogen spiking up to quite high levels and then plummeting down, like off you know off the other side of the estrogen cliff. And that drop from high to low just really does not feel very good. That can trigger night sweats, migraines, um, mood problems. Yeah, so we're trying to stabilize the situation as best we can, acknowledging that estrogen is always going to be going up and down. That's the nature of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'll get to that 
concept of recalibration a moment, which I really loved throughout your book. Um, you mentioned, I've just sort of picked some highlights from your book and obviously the um, listeners um, should purchase a book and, and learn all the details, mm-hmm. but some of the things that um, jumped out at me, I just wanted to, to go through a couple of them. So the heavy and painful periods or, or dysmenorrhea, um, one thing that jumped out at me was the potential connection with um, cow's milk to yeah. exacerbate the the pain. Um, so that's a, sort of an old naturopathic principle, yeah. but there was never any real sort of mechanism behind it. But it seems like there's a, a bit of a hint in the research about what could be happening there. Well, I can tie this back to metagenics because in, <laughs> in 2018, the Congress in Melbourne I saw yes. you there, Nathan. I think that was. The, I think I've got my years right. I've been to a few congresses, but I think it was 2018. Yes. Yeah, Tanya Dempsey did a uh, um, presentation about histamine and mast cells and how many mast cells are in the uterine lining, <laughs> and I was just kind of putting two and two together. I had a sort of penny dropping moment, and I talked to her a bit about it after, and I've sort of looked at it. So, I mean, here's a a, a potential mechanism of partly what's going on. It, it's to do with immune function and mast cells, I think. Um, Casein, A1 casein in normal cow's milk in, in some people, not everyone, of course, but in, in some people, I think it's about one in three people, I would estimate, form something called beta, uh, beta casomorphin 7 or BCM7, which is quite inflammatory, quite disruptive to immune function. And when that hits the mast cells, you know, they, they activate and potentially that's going to cause a release of histamine, but also heparin, which is one of the other... Um, substances released by mast cells and heparin has a blood thinning um, factor. So I think it's that. I think there's also, to be fair, I think there's also a fact that um, dairy protein stimulates insulin. And so you get mm. insulin is stimulating. So you, you get a thickened uterine lining combined with just a more potentially sort of f- inflammatory tendency to bleed. And that I believe is w- what's going on with the mechanism. As you can imagine, there's no research into that really i mean tanya dempsey's done a little bit in terms of histamine and heavy bleeding and pain and and i think in her research paper which i linked to from which sorry which i linked to which i cite in the book um she there they were using like um intravaginal antihistamines and things like that which is kind of intriguing but from a naturopathic perspective we can also just take a histamine reducing strategy and that can help with heavy periods. And in my view, any attempt to calm down mast cells or histamine has to consider, look at considering removing cow's dairy. Interesting. A um, couple other areas that jumped out at me. Um, migraines uh, seems like a really obvious thing that maybe often neglected it. Uh, you discuss how iron deficiency is a, is, could be a key driver, particularly in post-menstrual yes. migraines. So I, yeah, I, I make the distinction between premenstrual migraines, which is the more common migraine, and that's usually from the dropping of estrogen and the dropping away of progesterone. For premenstrual migraines, perimenopausal premenstrual migraines, um, a combination of magnesium and progesterone and other things like that can be really helpful. Postmenstrual have been linked in the research to the temporary worsened iron deficiency associated with just the blood loss. And in terms of the actual mechanism, you know, why that puts the brain kind of over the the migraine threshold, I'm I'm not actually sure. I mean, obviously Mm. iron is very important for energy and 
we know that, you know, migraines are quite an interesting thing. Like I think we know that, that um, cellular energy and mitochondrial energy plays a role in preventing migraines. So I suspect it's something to do with that, but I I included the citation in the book as well for that one about the iron deficiency and post-menstrual. And I, in terms of, yeah, mechanism, do you have any further thoughts about the oh, mechanism? No, I hadn't really thought about it much. Yeah. Um, I, I, I was curious whether it was also just a, a clinical insight, something you've noticed. Oh, no, it's in the research. Um, it's in the literature. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I hadn't noticed that until I saw the research and then I'm like, oh, that makes sense. And so now I okay. I use that yeah. with patients yeah. and I and it, it often does correlate. Like, this will be, these will be patients who have quite heavy periods who are potentially losing quite a lot of iron during those five or six days. Sure. Yeah. And I must comment, you've, uh, it's heavily reference, referenced your book. Well yeah. done. There's plenty of studies there. I couldn't chase them all up, but no. uh, I, I checked a few. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, the other couple in around perimenopause that jumped out at me, maybe more from a clinical perspective, is um, for mood. You mentioned iodine for mood swings. Yeah, no, that is my clinical observation. So, yes, um, that I love iodine for women's health. And in terms of the mechanism, I think partly what's happening is it helps to stabilize estrogen receptors. So that's why it helps with breast pain and breast cysts and and just premenstrual mood generally. It can also help to prevent ovarian cysts, I have found. So I, I think ID is quite important. As you can imagine, it's somewhat of a controversial topic and everyone has to sell quite low doses of iodine, but I mm, mean, to get a benefit mm. with the right patient, I think it can be helpful to go a bit higher with the dose. I mean, cause I know our listeners are practitioners. So I'll just say like, I, I, if I've assessed for safety, if there's no Hashimoto's or autoimmune thyroid disease, thyroid antibodies, then potentially the recommended dose for fibrocystic breast disease, painful breast mood is one to three milligrams, which is a bit high, okay. a bit up there. That's, yep. um, I, I do, I, there's a, a particular US product that uses three milligrams that right. I, um, yep. I linked, I, I mentioned in the book. Um, Excellent. I think iodine is doing so much else, you know, like the immune system loves it. So I think it's potentially having an anti-inflammatory effect. Obviously it does support thyroid as well, but it's not, we're not, I'm often not giving it so much for thyroid. I'm actually more the opposite. I'm just being careful that there isn't a thyroid problem before I decide to go ahead and use sure. iodine for premenstrual mood and breast symptoms. Yeah. So in your book, you discuss this concept of recalibration. And I suppose the takeaway I got was that the hormones are going to fluctuate. They're going to change and ultimately decline. And we'll get to that in a moment, whether that's actually a evolutionary uh, beneficial concept so um in lieu of the hormones not being there it's almost like you need to put more focus on many of the other systems of your body nervous system inflammation weight and so forth um so can you speak broadly about this sort of recalibration and then also how do you yeah frame up the other systems to support the um changing hormonal environment absolutely the recalibration of the brain and the immune system, both and, and every other system really, but those two systems is, I would say, the most important part of this book because we have to get through this safely and 
<laughs> out the other side. I think I, I use the analogy in the book. It's like a, an upgrade or like, sorry, you know, an update of your computer's operating system, basically. <laughs> and if you can, you know, get through the update properly without a glitch, then all is well. If you can, ex if you experience a glitch during the update process, the result can be some longer term negative outcomes. And, and so just to focus on the brain, losing first progesterone and then estrogen means the brain has to do everything differently. It's experiencing levels of inflammation higher than it had before. It's experiencing levels of energy temporarily lower than before. And that's because the brain doesn't have estrogen to help it to use glucose for energy. So it has to adapt and become metabolically flexible right. to learn to use or to be able to use ketones for energy. And if it can't do that, or if it doesn't succeed with that process, um, what is a temporary drop in brain energy can shift to a more per like longer term drop in brain energy. And some of the research suggests that down the track can increase the risk of dementia, different types of dementia. So you can see the stakes are kind of high. <laughs> we mm. really need to be able to do this, help our brain along. So um, it sounds like the like the hormone, the receptors, and the sensitivity changes during this period. It's actually, I think, it's fundamentally in terms of brain energy that aspect of the recalibration. It's about losing estrogen or learning to use a much lower level of estrogen than the brain had been used to during our reproductive years and how that impairs the cells or the mitochondria's ability to convert glucose to energy. It's really, I think a lot of it comes down to the fact that estrogen, estradiol in particular, supports or boosts the brain's energetic system. So you know, there's, there's going to be other aspects too, sort of obviously, you know, estrogen receptors, estrogen receptors on everything, <laughs> but mm, yeah. um, I think it's that energetic aspect of mitochondria. That's really where we, we see the, this measurable drop in brain energy. They can see that on brain scans and that can manifest. That's partly where we get this. A lot of us, including myself, you know, go through this few years of kind of forgetting words and kind of yes. forgetting names or in my case i give the example in the book of where did i park my car like just having this <laughs> moment of wait why is my brain not quite working it's, and the thing to understand like all symptoms of perimenopause these symptoms are temporary or at least they should be if you can navigate the recalibration and come out healthily on the other side of it sure uh, and so when it comes to supporting patients, then do you, does it mean extra support for the nervous system, the energetics, the brain? How do you um, translate this into clinical practice? This um, Obviously, it's a temporary phase, but how do we minimize the disruption and, and um, you know, how the, the impact on quality of life? How do we improve things? Yeah. So this, in Chapter 7, in Hormone Repair Manual, is all about the brain recalibration process and the symptoms associated with that, including hot flushes, memory loss, anxiety, migraines, 
I have a section there near the beginning called the basic action plan, <laughs> which is a lot of those things you just said. So supporting the nervous system, supporting circadian rhythm, you know, just if there was ever a time to take care and rest and recharge, perimenopause is a time to do that because so much is at stake. The other part of the basic action plan is an energetic strategy, which is to not have insulin resistance. Or if you do have insulin resistance, then to identify it and reverse that. Because that's one of the most important things you can do for the brain. By not having insulin resistance, the neurons, the mitochondria in the brain can make that metabolic switch from glucose to ketones. And they can't do that in, in the face of insulin resistance as well. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Uh, so in this part of the book, in, in some of the sections, you'll go through different systems and one that you spend a fair bit of time on is looking at gut and food sensitivities in around perimenopause and menopause. And uh, you cover off some of the, the usual suspects, gluten, et cetera. There's a couple that have um, piqued my interest. Uh, one was on alcohol. Um, I, th I think in Australia, New Zealand, it's often, I suppose, accepted that we we often like a drink. Um, but I think it's probably worth pointing out that there's potentially some um, adverse effects on hormones, particularly around this period of a woman's life. So what's your little take on alcohol in general for hormones? Perimenopause is not a time to drink. <laughs> it's definitely <laughs> a time to, honestly, I might, I might advise stop completely. It's yeah, really right. not friendly to the system. Well, for I think it's not friendly to the brain, right? Alcohol is a brain toxin, it shrinks the brain. Yeah. Um, I mean, not to be dramatic, but it's, it's, mm. it, and so the brain's already in this challenging recalibration process. Alcohol disrupts sleep. Alcohol is also quite a significant risk for risk for breast cancer. So more so than hormone therapy, which is kind of interesting. Even one drink per day wow. um, increases the risk of breast cancer. So it's one of those substances. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I mean, full disclosure, I do have the occasional drink, but I, I'm now at this point in my life, I'm 51, you know, I, especially in my late forties, I went through long stretches of time, like months in a row with no alcohol, which I'd never done before, but mm. which I felt like I just had to, to be able to sleep and feel well. And in terms of, it's interesting in terms of, you kind of mentioned alcohol within the context of, you know, food sensitivities. And so I just, for all, because everyone's a practitioner listening, I just want to reemphasize that alcohol causes intestinal permeability temporarily, mm. but um, it causes endotoxemia. Did you know, I mean, you probably know this, but the, the hangover that we get after a lot yeah, of alcohol right. is actually from the lipopolysaccharide that's right. entered our system from yeah. the intestinal permeability from yeah. the alcohol. Yeah. So that's not good i mean yeah. obviously those kinds of that level of inflammation like toxins is going to impair so many things about hormones you know it'll, um just it creates inflammation that adds to the for example you know histamine and mast cell activation and symptoms of estrogen you know excess that we talked about earlier so it's sure. and also sorry also alcohol impairs the healthy detoxification of estrogen so there's that so there's no point in taking dim or beta, you know, calcium deglucarate or anything like that if you're still drinking alcohol. And if you, what's the, your clinical experience been in um, women withdrawing or minimizing or completely avoiding alcohol in terms of their 
perimenopausal symptoms? Well, I state in the book that basically, I mean, there are some women for whom, let's say, taking magnesium and taurine, which is my favorite supplement for perimenopause, but maybe that plus quitting alcohol is all they need to do to abolish night sweats and hot flushes. Like sometimes it's that dramatic. Now I'm not saying that's all anyone has to do. Sometimes some cases are tougher and there might then might be required extra treatment. But if, you know, just looking at it, big picture, if you can stop flushing by just cutting alcohol, then I think it's probably a good first step. Fantastic. And just when I remind people, don't shoot the messenger. Just, you just, yeah, um, I know. Really in the facts. <laughs> um, another area that I found interesting around diet was this uh, around phytoestrogens. And I noticed so far we haven't spoke too much, and we'll get to it perhaps um, shortly about um, not trying to supplement. Not that that's a, a bad uh, strategy, but not trying to supplement with um, estrogens or phytoestrogens. You had this interesting discussion around how we may have evolved to eat higher levels of um, these phytoestrogens and they have this sort of uh, dual type of role depending on whether you're menopausal or perimenopausal. So can you describe that that concept around phytoestrogens from a, like a anthropological perspective? Yeah, so that came straight out of a book called Fragile Wisdom by an evolutionary biologist, Graznia forgotten her Jazienska, I think is her last name. Forgotten her last name. Exactly. We put it in the show notes. But um she has a chapter all about this. Basically it works like this. Phytoestrogens from plant foods, you know, legumes, primarily pulses, but grains as well and nuts and seeds, have an anti-estrogen effect in women of reproductive age. So when there's a lot of estradiol going up and down with ovulatory cycles, then phytoestrogens block, buffer that or reduce, have an anti-estrogen effect, which is different, obviously, than the slightly pro-estrogen effect they have in children, men, and women after menopause. So, but just looking at women of reproductive age, what Grasnia proposes and i found it fascinating because actually my background is evolutionary biology Mm. so i see a lot of things through this lens she not proposes i mean she builds the case she has several lines of evidence to suggest that those of us with agrarian ancestors evolved to have a higher to make for ovaries to make more estradiol to compensate for the anti-estrogen diet, basically, that to be able to keep reproducing, right, we had to ramp up our estradiol. So, you know, through looking at it that way, I mean, I think I, I say something like, we're evolved to eat legumes and grains. Grains, like our hormonal system is calibrated to them. Mm. So, yeah. So that's this. This is to completely debunk these sort of ideas out there that soy or, you know, other phytoestrogens are estrogenic in women of reproductive age. They're not, it's the opposite. And I think food-based phytoestrogens are quite you know, beneficial and, the re- and that's um, borne out in the research. We see that food-based phytoestrogens um, on a regular basis help to reduce the risk of reproductive cancers, potentially are quite good for helping to regulate the HPO or ovarian axis. Um, for things like PCOS. So, 
yeah, I think go ahead and have that a uh, little bit of tofu or the nuts and seeds. That's all. That's good. Your body's expecting that. Interesting. So it's sort of like almost the microbiome where there's this, um, the absence now can drive like uh, immune overactivity, like allergies, et cetera. So essentially we evolved eating these high amounts of androestrogens, but perhaps now our diets are deficient in it. That's when our own estradiol overshoots the mark that could be part of it i think there's different reasons why women experience symptoms of estrogen excess but yeah i mean i think that could be part of it a less whole food based diet also the microbiome as you just as a little aside hugely (laughs) important in estrogen like just estrogen balance like hugely important for one thing the microbiome is what actually converts phytoestrogens into their more active form the more anti-estrogen form it's also um the microbiome is how we clear. We have to have a healthy microbiome to be able to clear estrogen properly through the stool. Yeah. So there's that. Yeah. Uh, so I want to continue on with the evolutionary biology perspective, and it's part of your background, yeah. and move on to menopause. This is an area I find fascinating because almost in the West, it seems like menopause is a pathology of a, a lack of estrogen. But um, obviously, you know, since time immemorial, women, um, as they got into their middle and older ages obviously didn't have HRT, et cetera. And there's data on like hunter-gatherer populations that almost seamlessly, seemingly have zero uh, menopausal symptoms. Yeah. Um, you, you, you discuss this concept of the grandmother hypothesis from an evolutionary biology perspective. Can you describe that, that theory? Yeah. So it's basically that it posits that at some point in our evolution, it became more advantageous for women as individuals, you know, because that's how evolution works, selection on individuals, to redirect resources to support existing children and grandchildren rather than keep producing their own children. So it's costly to make a baby. So mm. in terms of trying to propagate genes into future generations, there is a, there's a sweet spot where it's actually beneficial to stop reproducing. And this, the very interesting thing about this, when I was researching the book, I read a book by historian Susan Mattern, who I, I recommend people take a look. It's called Slow Moon Rising. I think I've got it right, something like that. She's a historian. So she builds the case that selection for menopause is why humans evolved a longer lifespan. So in other words, both sexes ended up, you know, at some point in our hominid evolution with a longer lifespan but it was really selection for the post-reproductive time in women's lives because that is so useful for passing on their own genes for the group. In studies of modern-day um, hunter-gatherer groups, forager groups, women in that age group, 50 plus, like 50 to 70, gather more food per capita than any other demographic, than mm. men, than young women. Obviously, young women are busy with babies, so they're, you know, um, can't gather as much than, than young men. Like, I just, more in terms of calories, they're, they're extremely useful. And there's, a, I think it's a quote in the book, something like, you know, what would the Hadza do without their <laughs> legions of old ladies? Like, <laughs> basically, how would they even survive? So all of that kind of flies in the face, too, of this idea that menopause 
is abnormal because now we're just outliving our ovaries. That is not the case. The human lifespan, as, a, as opposed to life expectancy, has been in the 70 to 80 year range for a long time. That's what the evidence suggests. Whenever you hear people talking about life expectancy and a life expectancy of 40, that's an average, right? Like that's factoring mm -hmm. in all the people who died as children, in childbirth, of infection or injury when they were young. But the biological system, like the human frame, for quite some, probably hundreds of thousands of years, if not longer, if not millions, has been able to live to 70 or 80. So clearly menopause is not a pathology, right? It's a, it's a, um, it's a benefit. It's an asset. It's potentially something that was selected for. Yes. Um, so we'll get into it hopefully shortly, but you know, osteoporosis and flushes and weight gain probably was absent in those, um, hunter gatherer populations and we didn't evolve to become, you know, for women to essentially, um, accumulate all these symptoms and conditions. So it's not just a, a lack of estrogen driving it, is it? No, it's an evolutionary mismatch. So just to kind of hark back to what I was saying about how this shift to being less able to burn glucose for energy, right? That's not just in the brain, that's everywhere. So we shift to insulin resistance with menopause. From an evolutionary perspective, that would have been a superpower, right? Like we shift yeah. to a more thrifty metabolism. I'm just, I picture these like 60 year old women who don't need to eat as much because their you know, baseline resting metabolism right. is lower, but they get a lot of stuff done. So it would have been great. Think of it another way. Actually, being reproductive as a female is costly, requires more energy. So mm. it's so. But the evolutionary mismatch is we've shifted our metabolism shifted. But in the face of high calorie, high sugar, modern food environment, that creates insulin resistance. Like that creates a pathological degree of insulin resistance, and that's driving weight that's driving to some extent the hot flushes all the brain symptoms because they relate to brain energy and insulin resistance to some extent and it even affects bones right like if you know you probably know that osteoporosis is you know considered uh, insulin resistance plays a role in that it's right. a metabolic condition so i i'm pretty confident well i mean this is speculative but given what i've read and you know i think our yeah i think our and ancestors in their 50s and 60s were not plagued by yeah, hot flushes and the symptoms that we experience. There are other differences too. Sorry, just in terms of um, in their life history was different and that they would have probably had babies into their late 30s, early 40s, and then may have just gone from kind of seamlessly from their final lactation breastfeeding phase mm. just to never getting a period back. They didn't have to go through that perimenopause time of like, um, the ovaries grand finale, like these crazy high levels of estrogen that's crashing up and down. They would have just kind of gone from the low estrogen of breastfeeding potentially to, to right. menopause. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Less dramatic um, flux. Yeah. And one of the other concepts in your book and something that have also been interesting is this concept that low estrogen may be a beneficial state post-menopause because you're not getting all that um, proliferative actions of estrogen. Yep. But uh, with this concept of intracrinology, yeah. uh, hormones like DHEA get converted in cells and organs when they where they require still a little bit of estrogen stimulation. So can you just yeah, describe the yeah. 
endocrinology and, and why it's important? Yeah, well, that's aromatase, right? Like that's using androgens like DHEA and androsinodione, testosterone to make estrogens inside the cells. And of course, that's the baseline. Like that's what children do and men. Like we all... Estrogen is actually an absolutely essential hormone for everyone of every sex and every age. <laughs> like it's, you can't live without it. So we, we all make that. But then what's different, of course, is then in our reproductive years, we start making quite huge amounts from our ovaries, estradiol, and then our, you know, our body kind of gets used to that. So that creates this, if you will, like, you know, three to four decades of you know, I wouldn't, I'd say it's sort of just a, a different, you know, high estrogen state, um, which is beneficial too. I'm not saying that we don't, we do need those. Mm. We benefit from those decades of ovulatory reproductive cycles. But then when menstruation stops, then we just revert back. In the background, we've always had that baseline endocrinology aromatase, like every cell in the body making its own estrogen. And then with menopause, we revert back to that to a large extent. Although post even after menopause, ovaries still make estrogen only about 10 percent of what they used to so you don't get the big cycling the big the big up and down but you still get some and they still cycle actually get a little bit of up and down of estrogen even after periods stop and of course the ovaries are an important source of androgens as well as the adrenal glands so that's that's where the research suggests now that it's if you can you should really try to hold on to your ovaries because you need them even even after you're done having babies even after you're done having periods Mm. Hmm. That's true. Important. Um, so a couple areas of menopause I want to, to look at. Um, hot flushes is a interesting phenomenon where women obviously feel um, hot and obviously flush. Um, and that's all to do with this concept of the thermoneutral zone narrowing um, because of the lack of estrogen. But again, um, not every woman who goes through menopause gets hot flushes. So first of all, can you describe the thermoneutral zone and then the, this sort of conundrum that um, it's not just estrogen that can drive the, the um, presence of flushes? Yeah. So, I mean, this is a setting in the hypothalamus that basically, it's like a thermostat, right? Like that decides is the body, is are we the right temperature or do we need to, you know, heat up or cool down? And normally, I think what I say in the book, I quote, I think normally we have about a four degree kind of, wiggle room so you right. can you can go out into a hot day or get in a hot bath or you know step inside or outside and have a hot drink or you know all these things that change your body temperature slightly and your hypothalamus doesn't panic but with well it's actually it's not low estrogen again it's dropping estrogen but with yeah. kind of dropping estrogen we get this narrowing of the thermostat quite a touchy thermostat and but other things affect it too so definitely um like adrenaline and yeah, neurotransmitters, um, stimulatory neurotransmitters affect it right. too. So it's it's very much in in the brain chapter in chapter seven. I'm, I talk about ways to stabilize estrogen, maybe to take estrogen if you really need it. Also, progesterone can be help with um, stabilizing the hypothalamus and night sweats and hot flushes. Progesterone alone, um, and that's real progesterone, not progestins, but what I what's called body identical progesterone. And yep. then, you know, reducing stress, yoga, this magnesium, taurine, there's all ways we can help to stabilize that thermostat. Yeah, fascinating. I, I found it fascinating that some of the stress reduction strategies, whether it's nutraceuticals or, or yoga, yeah. has been shown to relieve Breathing. hot flushes. Yeah. 
Uh, also, while Nebrain, whilst Nebrain, one area that, again, uh, in the book that piqued my interest was cognition and a couple of nutrients that may be low, um, whether it's from intake, but also with the changing hormonal status in uh, B12 and choline and yeah. in particular because the uh, an enzyme is downregulated because of lack of estrogen. So can you describe the benefits and the need for those couple of ingredients post-menopause? For sure. Well, B12, as you know, is that's just more an age thing rather than a um, menopause thing per se. It's the fact that um, with age, we are less able to absorb B12. So I think anyone over 50, well, I don't, I'd say anyone, really anyone should be tested for B12. And we're looking for an optimal range on a blood test on a serum level. I'd say a serum level of at least 350 or 400. Um, B12 can make a huge difference for mood and sleep. And then choline, I can speak to this personally because, um, yeah, some of us are better able to make choline than others. As, as your listeners probably know, choline is one of those substances that we can both ingest as a nutrient and we can make it. Um, our ability to make it depends on the pimped gene. I can't remember how you say the full mm. um, <laughs> You might know the full gene. Uh, Phosphatoline, uh, methyl, something transferase. So something transferase, yeah. So I found out that I'm a, a double mutant or I was double snipped for that one. So I'm a yes. low, I have a low action of that enzyme, which was quite interesting for me. And I found that out when I was in the later stages of perimenopause and starting to experience low estrogen. And I found personally taking an activated choline has been actually of all the supplements and all my 25 years of being a, well, 30 years of being a naturopathic student and a naturopath, actually taking choline was one of the, I'm like, that was one of the first times I'm like, wow, that really, like, I really felt different in terms of my wow. memory and my sleep. Yes. And so, because yes, you alluded to the fact that that enzyme is upregulated by estradiol. So dropping estradiol will reduce choline production even further. Interesting. Um, and a couple other nutrients. So just reading through the book, they just seem to come up over and over. So I thought maybe if you had a little monograph on, yeah. on these two, um, and I really like the appendix at the back of the book. It's for the, for um, women uh, users that gives you um, recommendations and sources of these nutrients, which is great. Uh, the two that I just wanted to touch upon was magnesium and zinc. Some simple elements, but really kept repeating over and over and over throughout the, the book. So can you describe how you sort of frame these up and, and the importance of these two for women's health? Sure. And this is true for women of any age. You'll recall from period or perimanual that these were pretty popular <laughs> nutrients. I remember I received this review, an Amazon review on period or perimanual, which I thought was quite clever. She's like, you know, good book. Basically, take magnesium. <laughs> but, you know, there's a little, little bit more in there too. So magnesium, especially a good type, like a magnesium glycinate, in which case you also get the glycine, which is also beneficial. Um calms the nervous system. So it helps with that to stabilize the nervous system during that recalibration process that we spoke about earlier. And it also helps with improve insulin sensitivity. So that alone is a reason to take magnesium. There's a paper out there, British Medical Journal, and I can certainly give you the link if you want to put it in the show notes, proposing that magnesium deficiency is 
a cause or they propose, you know, one of the main causes of the epidemic of insulin resistance. Now, I'm not mm. sure I 100% agree with that. Agree mm. with that. I think everyone has their own theory as to what's causing the epidemic of insulin resistance. But certainly having enough, being replete with magnesium is very helpful because the mitochondria love it. So again, for the energetic system of the body generally and for the brain, magnesium can be a game changer. You know, I just, and of course, time and time again, throughout the book, I talk about taking it with taurine, which I've been prescribing for quite a few years now. I really, one of those nutrients I wish had been on my radar sooner. The amino acid taurine is also a neurotransmitter. So it calms the nervous system. It also improves energetics, um, helps to prevent insulin resistance. So as you know, in Australia and New Zealand, we can get supplements that have magnesium and taurine combined which is not something that's, that is easy to find in other parts of the world, but I've been, that's one of my mainstays for treating perimenopause. Yeah. And then and zinc, zinc. Yeah. Zinc is, well, I talk about it for a few things. It has a beneficial anti-androgen effect. So that can right. help with some of the symptoms of testosterone dominance, the weight gain, the a little bit of facial hair, things like that. Zinc, the other thing, place where zinc got a big mention, well, it mood can be quite important for the brain and for mood. I think a lot of practitioners know that. Also for vaginal dryness or what's called GSM, the genital urinary syndrome of menopause, it helps with tissue integrity. So it makes sense mm. that it's going to help with all of those, yeah, the sort of vagina, bladder, all of those changes to tissue um, with the loss of estrogen. Zinc, I had, I quote um, more uh, the Brisbane naturopath, she has a couple quotes in here, there um, about using zinc to improve the um, quality of vaginal tissue. Interesting. All right, a couple final questions, and these are less technical and more maybe philosophical or, or psychological. Um, we, uh, you know, I've gone through this and discussed that maybe a lack of drop of estrogen is normal and it's um, part of the, the aging process, um, but that's not to discount the, that hormone replacement therapy can be useful. So you're, you're quite balanced in this area. Um, and what I really liked in your book is giving like scripting and questions for the patient to speak to their doctor and have an open conversation around the, the consideration of hormone replacement therapy. So I suppose just maybe more of a bit of a frame up of, yeah, how do you integrate this into your practice or essentially where, where you sit on the, 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 the use and need or, or not of hormone replacement therapy? I'm quite positive towards its use if, if women need it. So as you can imagine, like it's, it's quite a nuanced conversation depending on the exact you know age you go through menopause and how severe the symptoms are, all of those things. And if there's any, obviously, history of breast cancer changes the conversation quite a lot. One thing I want to say, just just like kind of a semantics thing, but I think it's important. It's So it's no longer called replacement therapy. Yeah, it's okay. actually called menopausal hormone therapy, which is appropriate, I think, because it's not, re to take estrogen is not to replace estrogen because it's normal for estrogen to be low with menopause, right? So it's not like taking thyroid, hormone to replace mm, the, you know, if you get underactive thyroid, it's, it's not a pathology. So, but it is the question of, you know, whether to use it or not. Now, one of the ways that my book is probably quite different than some of the other resources out there is that 
I put a big emphasis on the value of potentially using progesterone alone. And that comes from my colleague, Professor Geraldine Pryor, who helped me with this book. And I used to quote a lot of her protocols. So that's real progesterone, right? Body identical progesterone, which in Australia is called Prometrium. In New Zealand, it's called Eutrogestin. It's the brand name. It's by prescription. And it can be together with the other treatments we've talked about, but it can be quite important for lightening periods, helping with pain, helping with migraine prevention, with sleep. It's highly sedating, um, helping with mood, potentially. So there's, that's more suitable in the earlier phases of perimenopause. And I do talk about the four phases of perimenopause in the book. But progesterone alone is most suitable probably for those earlier phases of perimenopause when estrogen is high cycling from like three times higher than normal down to low progesterone alone can help with that but then at some point some women if they're having a rough time you know later after, around the time of the final period and just after the final period may also require some estradiol now the great thing about our modern time and i've lived to see this thank goodness is that conventional hormone therapy is now body identical or bioidentical. So what you used to have to like get all complicated and go to a compounding mm. pharmacist and get it made up and fight with your doctor and like, you know, beg for it kind of thing. Now it's what they normally give. Not all types, not all products offered are body identical, but most are. So the, the patch that they typically give is body identical estradiol. And then, like I said, I mentioned the body identical progesterone, which is Prometrium or Eutrogestin. And so those are pretty standard now and i am this happened in australia in about it was well, it was exactly 2016 in october 2016 because <laughs> i remember yeah. you know gynecologist rodney baber you know worked to have that um prometrium body identical progesterone brought in because it's so much safer in terms of breast cancer and clotting risk and everything which is so these modern hormones body identical hormones are safer than what they used to give in the 90s, which is, I was practicing back then, so I saw what right. those old types of HRT were doing back then. Sure. Okay, and finally, a less nuts and bolts and biological yeah. question, and more on the psychology. This is a really fascinating area, and I'm certainly not an expert here. Um, you discuss in a chapter about the, the psychological transition women can often go through and some of the um, emotions around maybe feeling sort of um, not seen or the stigma of perimenopause and menopause, the grief they go through. So can you just maybe give an over, overarching um, description of this chapter and, and what were some of your main findings? Yeah, that was, I'm quite happy. I'm quite pleased with that chapter and how it turned out because yeah. I'll just give you the quick background on that. I wasn't going to include that because I'm a very practical person. I'm just like, this is just how to feel better. You know, it's not any of my business to kind of tell you how to feel <laughs> about the mm -hmm. process. But my publisher talked me into writing that. So as you saw, like I constructed it with a lot of quotes from a lot of different people, lots of different voices chiming in because it's going to be different for everybody, right? Like some women are just fine, like just, you know, it's breezy, easy, don't feel any stigma around it. Some of us, including myself, I think have, well, I think what I've, I'll just maybe just share my own experience just briefly as a sort of illustrative case. Like, I think I feared menopause more for like from a kind of social or emotional perspective than 
anticipating it, then once I actually got here, it's like, oh, it's fine. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like once I actually kind of get here, like, oh, wait a minute, it's fine. And no, why did no one tell me that it's going to be fine? But of course, because our society values youth, especially in women, there's going to be some, or at least for me, you know, some fear of what that means to no longer appear young or to perhaps not be, I don't know, as visible to men, I guess, as I used to be. Not that not that that should ever matter that much, but so I explore some of that. And I also just talk about for myself personally, this um, new sense of freedom that I have felt that a lot of women describe for me, I describe it as a second girlhood. And I have a few quotes about that. Mm. Just kind of being a little bit um, shirking some of my duties and just, just doing a little bit more what I want more of the time. And that seems to be a pretty common experience. So in many ways, you know, even though you might fear menopause and it's, it's, it's kind of exciting. I don't, I know that feels like kind of cliche and stereotype to say, but it, it is, it's, um, it's an interesting time to think about what really matters, I guess. And yeah. 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 It was a fantastic chapter and I'm glad yeah. you included it. Yeah. All right. So just about to, to wrap up, um, anything you want to mention about the book? Like we've just, I've just picked bits and pieces from it. Um, but yeah, I suppose that we didn't really discuss who's it targeted for, and it's not not so much for the practitioner. Would you say it's more for the that I suppose the woman going through perimenopause? Yeah. Uses God. Um, any anything you want to highlight? Like I said, the I think the scripting and the conversations to have with your healthcare practitioner was really good. Um, is there anything else I was missing that you just want to uh, mention to people to expect to see in the book? Absolutely, and I think you I think you cut, you hit a lot of the main points. Your questions were excellent, Nathan. I'll just say, um, I might just kind of recap in chapter one, I lay out what I see as kind of the the three main things that I want to get across with this book. One is that symptoms are temporary. So I go into that obviously in more detail, but just about understanding this is not how you're always going to be now. So if you like have this anxiety or autoimmune disease flare, you know, whatever it is, or fibromyalgia, I talk about fibromyalgia quite a bit in the book you know, flaring up, that may just be part of the transition symptoms and it's going to be temporary, which I think is really important for women to understand and for practitioners to understand as well. And then the second thing is that um, it's this window of opportunity. Well, it's a, it's a, um, a window of opportunity for looking after your health because it's, it's this time of recalibration in which you're, you know, potentially vulnerable to the onset of things like when we talked a little bit about you know the the memory loss and which could it you know if if you don't recalibrate properly could turn into longer term dementia things like that i'll give a few examples and the third thing which actually i list first in the book but i'm saying finally here as my main point it's um it's not about aging exactly it's not a symptom of aging you know it happens alongside aging but it's a separate hormonal event that arguably we evolved to do right like it's you know it's second puberty and also especially if you're you know starting perimenopause at 35 which is not uncommon you're not elderly you know you know it's it's also fine to get old i mean but that would be a different book this is still we're talking about women in their late 30s 40s early 50s you know this is um certainly not like the beginning of the end or anything like that so I hope that helps women navigate it. And it is, I wrote it for women, but like my first book, it, I think it might be the case that a lot of practitioners find it helpful as well, just for 
implementing some of the treatments and even just some of the scripts and talking points that I provide around hormone therapy. Perfect. Well said. Thanks, Lara. So the book will be out 23rd of February, um, yeah. which this Tomorrow. podcast will come out after that. So, And um, where, where can people um, purchase it? So my in Australia, New Zealand, everywhere. Yeah, my publisher is Pam McMillan in Australia, New Zealand. So it should be in most shops. I don't know. I might not say every shop, but it should be there. <laughs> and yeah, or online, of course, from any of the main distributors. So yeah, one more sleep and women can start reading it. And yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. Fantastic. Congratulations. It's such a, a, a mighty effort. And I think it's going to be a value addition to for women and also practitioners. Yeah. Great. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for your time. For useful links and resources, make sure you check out the show notes. The information provided in this episode is for educational purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for health and medical care. Always consult a healthcare professional for medical advice.